the enemy is out there to kill, steal, and destroy. And, you know, stress, confusion, and um, I find one of the biggest things people are suffering from is um, a low self-esteem and no self-worth. And um, that is, people are just living life every day in this chaotic, broken, broken state. And whether they become addicts or not, the, the people are broken. People are too proud or too, I don't know what they are, but they don't want to do that surrender to God thing or to, to their higher power. You know, people just want to operate in their own capacity. And, and it's just, I find it so sad. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey guys, O here, Share Podcast, hoping you and yours had a clean and sober Christmas. It is December 27th, Tuesday, two days after the Christmas holiday, and I'm hoping that for some of you that were struggling and having a tough time, managed to stay close to the Facebook group, stay close to your meetings, stay close to your tribe. New Year's is coming up, so make sure to surround yourself with recovery. It's such a slippery time for so many of us. Just wanted to give you guys a quick holiday shout out. Wish you lots of love and support from the Share Podcast. From my wife, Marcella, from Krista Wojo, and from myself, wishing you a very Merry Christmas and a safe and sober New Year. Now back to the show. Today, we have Michelle Tourlet joining us on the Share Podcast. And Michelle is the author of My Journey Through Darkness, a true life story of an ordinary young girl who records her journey as a drug addict. It is a roller coaster ride. So let's dive into Michelle's story. But first, just a quick reminder, guys, I really need some recordings here. I've only gotten a few, and I have thousands of listeners. So I need a few more of you guys to go to the website and record your message. That will be aired on the 100th episode. So once again, as we get closer to the 100th episode, I would like to invite our listeners to please go to the website and leave us a message on the right-hand corner of the webpage. If you go to www.thesharepodcast.com, on the right-hand side, you'll see a red button that says, leave a voicemail. Click on that button and a little box will pop up that says, start recording. What I would love is to hear feedback from our listeners. The Share Podcast has so many listeners, and some of you have been here almost from the beginning. I'd love to know the impact that Share has had in your life. I'd like to know your favorite episodes or anything else you feel compelled to share about the show. And I'm going to air each one of those recordings on the 100th episode. I would love for all of you to be a part of it. So again, please go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Remember to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. Click on the red button to your right where it says leave a message and tell us the impact Share has had in your life, your favorite episode, or anything else you'd like to tell me. So we can air it on episode 100. But first, if you would like to know the best way to show your support for the Share Podcast, here are a few ways you can help. First, go to www.thesharepodcast.com, and there you can sign up for our free newsletter, which will let you know every time a new episode of the Share Podcast comes out. You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. 
If you would like to know other places that you can listen to the Share Podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. If you would like to donate to the Share Podcast, you can do so via PayPal, or you can support us on Patreon. We have a thriving Facebook group that grows daily and has massive participation. Again, it's a private group, so if you would like to discuss recovery, share your experience, strength, and hope, help others or lean on others for support, be sure to join the Facebook private group. And all of this information can be found on the website. So go to the website, and there you will find all the information that you need to help support the show. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Michelle, thanks for joining us. Hey, Earl, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling pretty chilled. It's Sunday evening, so yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All the kids to sleep? Yes, they are. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That's good news. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, today we have Michelle Tolle joining us on the Share Podcast. Michelle is the author of My Journey Through Darkness, a true life story of an ordinary young girl who records her journey as a drug addict. Sounds fascinating. Yes, I suppose it's fascinating for some people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, wonderful. All right, well, let's dive right in. First of all, Michelle, take us through your daily routine and include recovery in there. Okay. Um, At the moment, I work with my fiancé, so we work from home, so we're pretty chilled. I'll get the kids to school, and uh, then we work all morning, then in the afternoons, it's kind of kids again, and we just go through the motions of a normal day, I suppose, for, you know, standard family, and... um, My recovery routine is basically just spending time with God. You know, I I try to do it on a daily basis for at least half an hour to an hour, uh, mostly in the evenings when I've got a bit of alone time. Um, Spending time um, with God every day um, doesn't only mean, you know, sitting down and reading the Bible and praying like religiously. It's, it's become for me more like a really, truly personal relationship. So whenever I'm alone, like often when I'm driving, in fact, I, I kind of just chat, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to always constantly be, it's become such a habit actually that I'm in continual conversation with him and, you know, getting strength from him and just sharing my feelings um, on a, on a continual basis. You know, when I'm struggling with something, I'll just go and let it all out. And when I'm grateful for something, I also find I can't stop, you know, just, just saying how thankful and, and full of gratitude I am. So yeah, that's really it for me. I remember too, especially early on in recovery for me, there was a lot of time that I spent talking to God either in my car or in the bathroom. 
because those, yeah, are, the yeah, place, yeah. those are the places <laughs> where I was absolutely by myself. Yes, yes, that, that's true. In the bath or other things, yes. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So um, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? Um, I always used to say very proudly that my anniversary date was the 2nd of December 2007. That was the last time I was at a big rave and I was pumped full of all kinds of pills and drugs and whatever you can think of. And the following day, I actually left my whole situation that I was in. I, I left my home, my my boyfriend at the time, and I fled and I went to live back with my mom and dad. Um so for me, that was my anniversary date, but I did use again in the following three years after that, um, you know, just like got a gram with a buddy here and there, probably only about five times. I never took specific note of exactly when, because um, I felt I'd recovered. It was not a part of my life anymore, you know, because it it had been part of my every single day life. And um, so I'd say my anniversary date really begins somewhere in 2010, if I want to be honest now. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would count it as, I would start with 2010. <laughs> yes, yes. No, so, for sure. That, that's the last time I used any form of drug. Okay. So, so we're talking about six years. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Now, do you remember how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how they made you feel that first time? Yeah, I was 14 and I started smoking. And about at the age of 16, I started going to a lot of parties with the older crowd of kids. And I start, you know, we, we lived kind of outside of a big city. We were in a small town. So we had a lot of house parties. And, I mean, I remember nights where my folks would come pick me up at 11 or 12, which was my curfew. And, you know, my mother would try and cover for me because I was stumbling to the car. And so, yeah, that was um, the beginning of drinking. Um, but I must say, I, I was always very, very afraid of drugs because I, I was always kind of fascinated by it. So I'd read a lot of books about it, watched, tra you know, the usual train spotting and basketball diaries. So I felt very educated, but so, and also very scared of it. And I always used to say, and I guess this is so true when we think of the phrase, the power of the spoken word, because I used to say, I never want to tr um, be introduced to drugs because my curiosity will get the better of me and I'll try it and I'll become a heroin addict. And yeah, what happened was I did end up becoming a heroin addict many years later. Oh, wow. Not a, not a surprise. Not a surprise. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because you're all warmed up. I'm going to turn the show over to you now, Michelle. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Michelle, take it away. Okay. When I was, I think I was about 20 years old, I was living in Germany. I had gone overseas to be an au pair and to travel and follow my dreams. 
And I got involved with a, a bunch of people who were about 12 years older than I was. I used to work in a school, and they were all teachers, believe it or not, in the school. And they were all very, you know, chilled, and, and a lot of them smoked weed. And then we'd often go over to Amsterdam for a weekend or a week or so, and, you know, we'd, we'd consume mushrooms and lots of weed and space cakes and whatever. And... So slowly but surely, I started to, you know, I tried something here and then I tried something there and and slowly I realized, but oh, it's not so bad, you know, that this drug thing is not such a bad thing and I became less afraid. So I lived in Germany for two years and yes, during that time, I would say I became, um, what do you say, uh, you know, I softened to the whole big bad fear of drugs and I never I never took a different drug because I wanted something better or something more or you know it was um, I always said my favorite drugs were mushrooms because it was just so chilled and visual and happy and pretty and I felt like Alice in Wonderland and I could just be in that state forever and forever <laughs> which my friends used to say I'm insane because a lot of them couldn't handle it it was just too too hectic um, but it definitely one thing in when I look back later on in life I realized that by trying something small you know just have a joint or just have a little you know a bit of mushrooms it, it, it makes you arrogant. It makes you not scared anymore of, of the dangers of drugs. And so the following year, the third year overseas, I moved over to London and I lived there. And that's when sort of all it all went for <laughs> to, to hell, <laughs> literally. I am... Um, I met a guy and he used to work very late at night in a pub and then he'd come to my house after that to visit me and one night he just said, I have a present for you. I was like, oh, okay, that's nice. And he took out this little small package and it was tightly wrapped up white stuff in a little, you know, cling film. And I was like, oh, what is this? And he said, oh, it's rocks. So I was like, okay, well, that's cool. Um, I, I wasn't at that point very familiar with, with crack, cocaine. Um, I didn't realize how, how dangerous this stuff was. So nevertheless, we packed the rocks onto my little pipe I, I got a, as a souvenir in Amsterdam. And we smoked this stuff. And, you know, I'll never forget that instant feeling of, you know, you're like king of the world. You know, it's an instant, instant high. But right. obviously, as, as much as it takes you up so high, so fast, it also brings you down so fast and, you know, so badly. It's, it's horrible. Um, then a few minutes later, I was still kind of flying around the room like an insane person. He said, no, he's, he's got something else there, but I'm not allowed to have any. And he unwrapped this, another little baggie and he had a piece of tin foil and you know, I was very confused and I thought, and at first he said heroin and I was like, oh, but that's, you know, no, this is bad. This is really bad. And I was imagining needles and cooking up and, and he just had this little tin foil, and he's like, no, 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 I'm just going to chase, but you can't have any. So, you know, of course, curiosity did kick in and I was like, well, no, you're not going to do this without me. I want to know what it's about. You know, <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> 
And <laughs> yeah, so that was the first night I did crack and heroin. And I mean, I was obviously violently sick from the heroin. I remember it was a sweet tasting, revolting, nauseating taste. That uh, was terrible. But yeah, so heroin wasn't really my, my favorite thing. But a week later, of course, you know, oh, did you get stuff again? You know, are we going to get some stuff again? So, yeah, we got some stuff again. And before I knew it, I, I understood why um, this guy always had to have heroin with the crack because I just loved the crack. I just wanted more and more rocks. And because without it, you you, you know, the heroin helps you to come down nicely. So they go, right. yeah, so they go hand in hand. And it was a case of, um, I think, about three months. I was, like, completely hooked. We only chased. We never we never touched needles because I've got such a fear of needles, thank God, <laughs> for that. And um, I think it was a total of five months. But in, in my book, it's unbelievable how I actually – I started journaling, like, every day. Every time I smoked a rock, I would start writing because from the beginning – even though I always loved the highs of any drugs, there was something inside of me that was always fighting it. You know, I, it's like I would smoke that, that rock and go, oh, you know, no, let's write. You know, this is bad. How am I going to stop? And, and my spirit fought against it all the time, <laughs> which, um, which yeah, led to not a very you know, happy drug addict. <laughs> I could put it that way. And so, yeah, five months later, I eventually stumbled into the house of friends of mine from many years ago because I'd obviously become very isolated, as you do. Um, you know, all I did was go to work, come home, smoke, you know, everything, just go to work to earn money to pay for more drugs. And it was this horrible, vicious cycle. And it, it destroyed, obviously, our relationship because it turns you into an absolute numb robot, a vicious animal, actually. I couldn't believe the change that I saw in, in my boyfriend. And, um, yeah, it was a very dark, awful time. We lived in this one – we lived in a commune, but there was no communal area like a lounge we just had this tiny single bedroom, which we lived in constantly. So it was always sort of clouded with these puffs of crack smoke. And, um, yeah, it was, it was revolting. And yeah, yeah it was just, it stank, you know, just the smell is that I think that's something that haunted me, uh, you know, when I got clean, that smell, I'd wake up from dreams of that, that sweet chemical smell. It's just so horrible. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then when I went to my friend's house, I walked up to their place one one morning. It was the first time that the sun had come out in London after the winter because uh, that was also a very depressing thing for me to live through a winter in London. It's so dark and cold, and, you know, being from Africa, it was just killed me. And so I, I just – my boyfriend had gone out to some job. He, he went through jobs like, you know, you go through, I don't know, bread or whatever – he just couldn't oh, yeah. ever hold a job down. So I was supporting the both of us for the most part. So he was out that day and I walked up to their house and before long I just came out with my whole story and I said, you know, guys, I've got a problem and I, I need to, I need help because I don't want to die. I don't want this thing to get the best of me. And this is not me, you know. I, I remember standing waiting for our dealers 
and they some for some reason they always have their spots to meet you in front of like schools. It was so strange. <laughs> I always thought this was so weird. <laughs> I'd stand on the street on the sidewalk in the middle of winter, no makeup, you know, because you just stop caring about anything. And with this hoodie on and, and shivering and and then then you your dealer does you in, you know, and you, you pay him so much money and it's like blood money and then he gives you half of what you're supposed to get. And I remember looking in my, at my reflection in the, the cars standing on the on the sidewalk and and looking at myself thinking, Who are you? You know, who who is this person? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who you are. So I went to these friends and I told them my story. And they both, um, the girl just shared with me how she battled with alcohol in her life as well. And and then all of a sudden, my, my one, the guy, he just suddenly spoke up and he said, but what are you going to do? So I said, well, I have a plan. You know, I'm going to go to a clinic and I'm going to get clean and I'm going to leave this boyfriend of mine because he's obviously not helping me. And um, he just looked at me and said, no, no way. You have to go home. And I was like, what? Home? You know, I haven't been home in three years and I have a Belgian passport, so I'm planning on staying here for the rest of my life, you know, and I was actually enrolled to study as well in England um, the following year. So that I threw away as well. But he, you know, at that point I was just so finished in my spirit. You know, I I knew I I couldn't do anything in my own power anymore. So he helped me and he said, when you get your next salary, you come to me, we'll book you a one-way ticket and you are flying back home to mom and dad because that is the only place where you're going to have love and get helped. So um, off I went. About two weeks down the line was the end of that month. I got my pay. I went back home. And only then did I come out to my mom and dad about my problem. And I'm just so thankful to God for them because they are very open-minded. They're wonderful, wonderful parents. And my mom obviously started crying. And my dad just looked at me and he said, right, what do we do? What do we do to fix this, you know? Do you have to go to a hospital? Do you need medicine? (laughs) What do we do? And I just said, look, all I need is to just, you know, rest and stay away from Nigerians. (laughs) (laughs) very important you know lock me in this house so it took about two weeks they were great my mom um my dad said okay I can sleep with my mom in the bed you know just so that I'm cool and feel safe and she'd wake up with me at night when I had terrible cramps and I was actually very very lucky because I I saw how um, the boyfriend I had in London, because we obviously did try and come clean a few times. It never lasted more than three days because once you hit the rattles from heroin withdrawal, it's like you just want to kill yourself. So, you know, um, I saw how badly it the sickness would get to him. So I was very lucky because I I got a bit of flu before I left London. So I was kind of recovering from flu, and I, I suppose I didn't really know what was now the heroin withdrawal or what was the flu, you know, because I just I felt bad <laughs> either way. So I, I actually feel grateful that I didn't have the extreme vomiting, the extreme diarrhea. I had a very painful backache and a bad cramps in all my muscles. But And obviously that depression, you know, you've got to just get out of that. So two weeks down the line, I finally got up and decided to 
get on with life. And so my mom and dad live they live about two hours away from Joburg on a plot. You know, it's like a farm next to a river. It's so beautiful, but it's in the middle of nowhere. So I was like, well, I'm not going to live here. <laughs> I'm going to Joburg, you know, um, bright lights and all of that. So very, very lucky again. I got a job very quickly at the same company which I worked for in London because they're a global company. So I got, I was sorted with a job. My dad helped me out with a car and I went to stay with my aunt. So things were just falling into place. And I, and another very important thing, uh, part of my story is that from when I was very young, I've believed in God and I was born again when I was 10 years old or something. And I've always said, I want to do great work for God and I want to really follow his purpose for my life. And yeah, somehow I just kept making really bad choices along the way. But here I was, and I was happy, and I was clean, and I felt healthy spiritually and physically, and I went to Joburg to start my life over. It was a matter of, I suppose, about three months. I'd finally moved in with a girl into a house share, so I was now getting more on my feet and more independent again, but I was very lonely. So what does Michelle do? She decides one night on a Saturday she's going to go and pop in at her local um, shall I call it like a rave club? It's a proper underground club in Joburg. Very, very, very famous place. Um, I went there many years back um, before that time with a friend, and I was like, you know, in shock. Wow, look at all these crazy people. So off I go, something stupid like 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, walk in all by myself, five minutes. I'm organized with a pull, you know, ecstasy. I've got friends, you know, and I'm dancing the night away. I must say the club scene itself was extremely attractive to me because it was so social and everybody's so friendly and everybody loves each other. And I was always very aware that it's very false, but it was still such a safe, nice little bubble to be a part of. And so that club just became my home weekend after weekend after weekend. And Obviously, before I knew it, I was um, using uh, – uh, it's usually we used to take pills and then there was always the odd, you know, people in the toilets with cocaine or we've got a drug. I don't know if you know about it called CAT. No. What is um, it? CAT is very similar to Coke. It's just a cheap version. So they always say it's all the rubbish you can you can make it at home, like from the stuff under your kitchen sink, you know. it's. <laughs> Oh, horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Stuff. Sounds lethal. <laughs> it is, but it was cheap, you know. So if if we'd pay 300 rand for a gram of Coke, you'd pay 150 for a gram of cat. So you'd get, you know, two for the price of one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and I was I always preferred the uppers, you know. I preferred the, the being awake and, and talking and staying up for yeah, days and yeah, days. Right. <laughs> So yeah, the clubs. I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never. I, that was my bad. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, not cool, but yeah, we we understand each other at least. <laughs> I can, we can relate. Yes, we can relate. That's yes. all. <laughs> um, yeah, I was never into. Um, I, I never really was into drinking much alcohol or getting stoned on weed or even the heroin was never my favorite thing because it would make me just sort of be like numb, and I hated that. You know, I wanted to jump around. So. 
Yeah, the club scene happened, and then I met another boy, and I – but also throughout the time I was in the club scene, it was so funny. I would, I'd walk around and be like, you guys, can't you see that this is wrong? It, you know, look around you. Just take a look at us. Look at these people on the dance floor. We all look like a bunch of, you know, we're in a trance. And it's, it's like the DJ is a puppeteer. And I was always so aware of, <laughs> of the evil behind this. And, and even though I was right there in the middle of it, it's like something in my spirit just wouldn't succumb. It wouldn't accept it, you know. And sure, today I'm very thankful for that because I believe that's what really eventually pulled me through, you know. But, you know, and then the people would always laugh at me and go, oh, shame, she's having such a bad trip again, you know, just ignore her. Crazy blonde chick. And <laughs> so I met this guy and I, I said to him, you know, we like each other and it's all cool, but I, I need you to understand that I don't this I don't want to do this anymore. You know, so if this is your scene in your life, then we can't be together because I really my intention is to kind of escape from this. And he's like, Yeah, no, I fully agree, I'm with you. Let's let's not do this club thing anymore. And so we stopped going clubbing, but what happened was he was very fond of cat. And so slowly but surely we started to get cats at home. You know, we'd be Friday night chilling at home. Instead of opening a bottle of wine like normal people do, we'd like phone the dealer and get two grams of cats. Stay up all night. The following morning we'd be like, yeah, let's just get another two grams. And this <laughs> very sadly carried on for two years. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, I can't tell you. It, and, you know, I always used to think, People might look at my life and, and not they wouldn't know any better. You know, <laughs> no one would even have a clue. But my life consisted of going to work on a Monday, feeling like absolute rubbish because I wouldn't have slept from the, third, from the Friday till Monday morning. I, I would get no sleep because I, I can't sleep if I'm on uppers, you know, for like a day later. And, and I wouldn't eat. So... You spend Monday in, in like just trying to recover. You go through the motions, go to work, come home, crash. Um, but by by Thursday, you're feeling like human again, and then you're like, okay, you know, tomorrow's Friday. Woohoo! Friday comes along, and on your way home from work, you're already phoning the dealer saying, please deliver at my house. And the whole weekend, while we're on the stuff. Um, we had a couple of friends and we'd often, you know, hang out together at home. Sometimes we'd go out um, to a club, but very, very minimal because, you know, we were going to stop doing that. <laughs> right. It was so, so, you know, you just think to yourself, how stupid, you know. Yeah, we are actually, we might as well have just done it properly. Um, but no. Well, wait, this is, this is, this is back. What happened with your parents real quick? Like, were you still living at home, or did you just bail altogether, and you're just back out on the back out on your own again? Okay. Well, when I, I I came home from London, and I went straight to my parents' place, and then two weeks later, I went and I lived in Joburg, which is like in the big city, two hours away from where my folks live, where they still live today. Oh, so in the, so you bolted two weeks. You came in, you got clean, sober, and boom, you're gone. Yes. Yes. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. 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 No, but okay. So please continue. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. So while uh, it was about uh, during the first year of this two year period now, you know, on cats and just um, after the first year, I, I, I told my parents again, you know, because again, I always wanted help. I always wanted to stop. I was always writing my journal and then making plans and trying to figure out how on Friday I am going to say no. <laughs> and, you know, and so I told my folks and I said to them, look, you know, guys, we, we, we've got this problem and it's not as bad as the first time with heroin, but it's a problem and it, it's taking up all my money every month. And, you know, I don't know what to say, but but I'm working on it, you know. So I always felt like if things are in the light and you're accountable to somebody, it makes it more difficult to carry on with what you're doing. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So I was always very open with them and, and very thankful that I could be open with them. You know, otherwise I don't know what I would have done. So they knew and Obviously, I did spend a lot of time lying to them as well because now they knew there was this problem, but I also didn't want them to worry constantly and I didn't want them to, them to think that it was worse than what it actually was. Um, but at the end of that, that two-year period, my dad, one day, he gave me a phone call and he said, look, I'm giving you a choice. Either you come home again and you leave your life behind that you've you've built up because during that time I actually ended up getting another job in a very very great company where I was a trainer. I used to train um, sales guys in the Toyota dealerships on um, a software package, and so I would travel all over South Africa for like three days at a time, and I would give these these training presentations and workshops, and I was so good at my job, and I loved every minute of it, and I actually, you know, even though I was using on such a, a large scale, I, I managed, or I've just forced myself to to do the best that I could at work and not lose my job, you know, not call in sick and not fail in that area. So my job was, I was excelling at my job and I was earning very good money as well. Um, but it's never enough when you're on drugs. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. So, but the guy I was with at that point, uh, we actually got engaged at some stage. And, but he was, he was a very much a denial person. You know, I'm very much the opposite. I'm very aware of myself and my my situation, and I I was always admitting that this is a problem. and And he was just like, "Oh well, I can stop at any time. So whenever you're ready, you know, we'll stop." And I was like, "Shit, you know, I need your help. I need you to support me. I need you to also <laughs> admit that this is a problem for both of us." Because should Friday come along, and I would manage to just not open my mouth because when your mouth opens, it's the word let's, let's call the dealer, you know, so I would manage to just keep quiet all night and then he would say, oh, let's call the dealer and I'd be like, hello, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're trying to quit, don't do this, I can't say no, once you've said it, then you've said it, then I can't, then there's no more resistance, you know. Um, so, yeah, this, and so he was – not very supportive at all. And it kind of, it made me feel like I was crazy because 
every Sunday night he'd be sleeping soundly after the last drugs were used up and I'd be sitting there like a, a frantic person typing or writing in my journal and how how can I stop this? You know, this demon is just consuming me and I hate it. And, and I, you know, it was, a, it was a continual battle in my mind. So the night my dad phoned me, he said, look, here's your ultimatum. Either you come home and we help you, but this time I will tell you when you're allowed to leave again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yes. I like this. <laughs> Yeah, he he didn't, then he learned, he learned, you know, we learned the hard way. And, uh, yes. or you carry on doing what you're doing, but then I cut you off uh, financially. You know, my folks would never say that they would disown me or cut me off from their lives. But he just said, look, when you need money for petrol, I can't give you money for petrol anymore because I know that it's, it's money for drugs. So yes. then you guys are on your own. And at that point, I was also, I was kind of at the end of my rope, you know, I was tired of my battle, I was tired of plans, and, and all these things were just amounted to nothing, you know, every Friday night, we'd be in the same position, and every Sunday night, I'd be sitting there crying my eyes out, because of my, you know, my pathetic, weak self again, and so yeah, condemnation was the ruler of the day, and I gave it some thought, and I went to my boyfriend or my fiance at the time and I said, look, I have a plan. Why don't we work until the end of our year, get our bonuses, give our notice, and then we both go to the farm to my parents and we get clean. You know, they'll support us, they'll feed us, they'll, they'll just be there for us to get healthy again and then we start over. And he was in agreement <clears throat> and this was about October when this phone call happened and we made our decision. So we had a few months left. And, you know, obviously then you're like, okay, now it's just go. You know, just, just oh, now we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's months. Yeah. Like, it's not just like we're going to stop after this weekend. No. You know, it's like a couple of months of debauchery. Yes, yes. And then it's just, yeah, oh, no, then it's just – then I also – I stopped caring. I, I stopped trying to fight it. And there was just, there was a day where I, I remember I landed at one of my uh, training destinations on a Sunday afternoon. And in, um, I think it was Bloemfontein. And I got there and I was on my own for the training uh, workshop. And I just fell down. But now obviously it's Sunday afternoon. So you've got to understand, you know, I've just flown, a, you know, a short flight on a plane with all these people around me and I'm wired out of my brain. I'm so skinny. My eyes are sunken in. I'm like all jittery and shaky and your mouth tastes, you know, it's just, ah, <laughs> I'll never forget that, that feeling of coming down and, and I just, I landed and I got to my little bed and breakfast and I fell on the bed and I just said, Lord, now I'm done. I am now finished. I give up. Now it's over to you kind of thing, you know. And I, I just said, I'll do whatever it takes, but you've got to intervene because I don't, I can't go on like this. And then on the 1st of December, well, the, yeah, the 1st of December was a big, huge uh, rave. We have one four times a year here in South Africa. It's like at this big water park, and they've got all these cool international DJs that come. And I'd been to quite a few of them in the past, 
And my friend had bought us all a ticket for her birthday. She bought us tickets for her birthday because we were also damn broke. <laughs> and um, so the day before that, though, she had sent me these messages which were just so mean. And she was saying stuff like, I'm so sick of having you. as a, You're such a weak friend. And um, it's just horrible messages. And I said to my fiance, you know, I, I looked at him and I was so broken and I'm like, you know, we've been there for this girl for the duration of our friendship and I've never judged her and I've never been ugly to her and here she is just throwing all the stuff at me and I was just in such a weak place that I just couldn't stand it. And there we went the next day and she acted like nothing happened. So we picked her up and off we went to this rave. And we, it was actually a very nice rave. <laughs> I remember thinking, well, <laughs> at least, because <laughs> often, often what would happen at these places, we'd, we'd get all our stash beforehand, you know, obviously. And I would take these, we have, yeah, well, I don't know if we still do, but we have a, a drug called a disco biscuit, which is, a, it's like ecstasy laced with acid, but it's very, very strong. <laughs> Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. <it's> like, <laughs> and I used to, you know, just like on a normal night out, I would take like maybe a quarter. But at, at these events, I would think that I'm, you know, Rambo, and I, I would drop a whole one, and I would just sit there on the lawn rushing and being completely useless for the entire, like, rave. You know, and, and I would be so frustrated <laughs> and cross because it's like I missed the whole party. You know, I felt fabulous, but I just sat there. So that used to be, oh, yeah, that wasn't cool. But that night, that, that day, because it's a daytime outdoor water thing, very cool. And um, that day, I actually, I danced the whole day, and it, it, was, it was just so much fun. And all, like, all the people from the past were there. You know, it was just like one of those great days. And then at, it, when evening came, we all got in the car to go home and we went to my friend's place to kind of carry on with our party as one does. And all of a sudden she again, she, she stood up and she started um, talking to me with this really strange, but also you have to know she, was, she started using um, crystal meth at that point for, for a while. And we never touched that stuff because, you know, to me that was like heroin class, you know, you don't, you don't go there. And I could see how the stuff was just, you know, changing her into an absolute monster. But um, she just stood there that day and well, it, now it was like the sun was coming up already. And she just said, you're such a weak friend and you call yourself a Christian, but look at you, you're a drug addict. You know, how can you do that? You're such a hypocrite. And, and I, I stood there and I looked at my fiancé and I, I waited for him to say something to defend me, to stand up for me, to, to say, let's go home or something. And he just said nothing. And I think that's just what made me crack, you know. So I, I just looked at him and said, come, we're going home. So off we went to our own house. And my brother was actually with us that day because he used to come up. He, used, he still stayed with my folks. Um, on the river, so every few months he'd come up and we'd do a big a big rave or something. You know, he enjoyed those big events. And um, we went home and I packed my bags and I took my dog and I went, I phoned my dad and I said, you know, Daddy, I'm coming home and please phone my boss. You know, please tell her that I won't be coming back to work because I was just too ashamed to make that call. And 
Yeah, so I went home, you know, and of course the fiancé never ended up coming to the farm as, you know, that was our plan. Um, Right. Yeah, so we we stayed together for about two more months when when I finally realized, you know, we were only something when we were on drugs. You know, that's partially why I used to love getting a gram of something so that we could sit and chat to each other all night. Otherwise, we we wouldn't. Which was a sad realization two years down the line, you know. Yeah, so that's really the very, very basic brief version of um, what happened. And then from there, I was now in this place. And obviously, after I came down the next day and um, sort of sanity settled back into my mind, I realized with such a shock that I had just left my whole life. And... I could not go back. I knew I couldn't go back. But it it was just it was an absolutely traumatic feeling because you when you're on drugs you always have this thought at the back of your mind of you know just one more time I'll do it later I'll be mentally prepared for that day. And you know just making that sudden decision and suddenly extracting myself from the situation was such a shock to my system i just spent days crying you know i was like oh it's my home and it's my my fiance and my life my job you know how could i have just left it all but i knew i had i knew i had to have done that because if i didn't i would never have left you know so the short of it is i i believe to this day that in a miraculous way, God intervened by just letting things play out the way they did to force me to make that choice. Because otherwise you don't, you know, you, you just carry on and carry on and carry on and wait for something to happen. So um, then, yeah, the, the, the year that followed was, was obviously like it is, I think, for any addict. It was very hard because not only had I now not have you know not only didn't I have drugs around me anymore but you know I had to start my whole life from scratch again this was now like the second time and I was I think what was I at that point 22 23 years old or something no I was older I was about 27 and um so I got involved with our local church I tried to just consume myself with um with godly things, you know, and going to Bible school, going to cell home group meetings, um, going to ladies' prayer meeting. You know, every day of the week I had something that I could keep myself busy with. And um, I also spent just a lot of time in the Word and with God and rebuilding my strength again spiritually. And I also, I was very blessed. A lady in my church had, she ran a, a nursery school and she was tired of it. You know, she was just kind of ready for something else in her life. And she offered for me to run the school. And it was very run down at that stage. So, you know, it was just so great. I was given this project, you know, like here's a school, get more kids, earn yourself a little living and, you know, fix it up and make it nice. And so I did that for for two years, I think. Yeah, it was about two years. But the school also never earned enough money for me to actually draw a salary. You know, I was just kind of covering all the overheads. And still, you know, I was the school was like a little house. So I could live there during the week and then weekends I'd go to the river to my folks. 
And yeah, uh, life was boring. I <laughs> 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 think, oh my lord, life is so boring. Um, compared to what I was used to, you know, I mean, my life was a roller coaster before then. Um, and then, yeah, that that is kind of the end of my drug story. Um, I went through a lot of stuff after that. I moved around quite a lot in my life as well. Um, I, I tend to to make um, to fall in love with men that are very bad for me, as you've probably <laughs> realized. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of a pattern there. <laughs> yes, very much so. And I'm just so thankful now. Um, when I look at my life now, I just think, you know, I've really, I really feel, I really believe that I've, I've, I've really been released from so many of my past things, not only the addiction side, but also that, and you know, I've done a lot of research because I was always searching, soul searching, you know, why, why can't I stop taking drugs? You know, why, what is wrong with me? And, and through a lot of my studies and and research and that I found that it stems, it, it usually stems from a need to be loved. And that's where people tend to um, fall into addiction, and in my case, also to fall into unhealthy relationships one after the next, because I didn't, I hardly ever had a break in between my relationships. You know, I just meet the next pretty boy, and it would be like, oh, I'm so in love, <laughs> and we'd, <laughs> we'd we'd move in together and get engaged, and oh, this, you know, it's ridiculous. But um. But I think I finally, I'm now 35, and the other day I, I read my book because I've been, I've been thinking about changing it a little bit and adding onto it because a lot happened after um, where it currently ends. And I read the story, and I just thought, you know, that one person can, can go around the same mountain so many times. It's just quite sad. But what what struck me this time was, how how much grace God showed me in my life because every time that I escaped a bad situation and I, I tried to, I, well, I did, I started over and I got on my feet and just before I made a big mistake again, um, God was there. He was always there. Whenever I got to that point where I got to my knees, he was there without fail. And that is just, you know, it's invaluable. I, you know, that's just something that has it blows me away when I think about it. You know that you can make so many mistakes. You can make the same mistake a hundred times, and every time if you go to God and say, you know, I'm so sorry, Lord, please, please forgive me. You know, He He does. Yeah, it's very powerful stuff. <laughs> He always listens. He does. He really does. He's just, it's like he's just there waiting. He's waiting for you. He's like saying, oh, my girl, you know, I can't help you now because look what you're busy doing. But the moment <laughs> that you, you know, you do come back with your tail between your legs kind of thing, you know, he's there with arms wide open. Yes, there's no question about it. And there's yours is not uh, a unique story. Uh, I fall in line with the same. It was the foxhole prayers did me no good. Faith without works is dead. Please get me out of this jackpot. Please get me out of this mess. I promise I'm never going to do it again. All the time 
whenever I would be saying that, I knew deep down inside, I'm like, God, if he can actually read my thoughts, he knows I'm lying. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it would be this horrible, just terrible, just vicious cycle. But when you finally turn it over, when you finally are so desperate and you sincerely ask for help, it's it's instantaneous. Yes. He shows himself. Yes, it's 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 true. I have to tell you one more thing. I can't believe I forgot this part because this is kind of where it ends um, for real. I I spent a year um, kind of in recovery with, I always say my parents were my rehab, you know. I actually wanted to go to rehab very desperately. I looked into it and I, you know, I looked up rehabs, but they're so expensive and my folks are not financially very strong. So they couldn't afford to send me anywhere and flip, I was a drug addict, so I couldn't afford it myself. But um, so I spent this year at rehab with them and At the end of that year, the following December, my brother said to me, "Um, I'm going to take you with me on a two-week holiday to Cape Town. And I was like, oh, my goodness, really? This is so great. You know, all expenses paid. My brother's going to – and he's my little brother, by the way. He's the sensible one. (laughs) Uh, You know, he had money for holidays. (laughs) Nice. Yes. So funny. So off we went to Cape Town. And it was obviously over the, the the Christmas and New Year period. And there was an old, I wouldn't even say an old school friend. It was just a school acquaintance. This guy that he had been in my high school. We hooked up on Facebook. And it was one of those cases of, oh, if you're ever in Cape Town, give me a call. So there we were in Cape Town. And obviously, we wanted to go out partying at least once. And I phoned this guy and I said, hey, we're here. Can you help us? We don't know where to go, you know. And he's like, yeah, we're having a house party. Pull in. Um, Needless to say, two, three weeks after our Cape Town trip, I was pregnant. (laughs) 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 You do work fast. It's bad. (laughs) The worst part was um, going home again to my parents. Can you imagine? You know, these poor people. (laughs) <laughs> have have had me come home. Yeah, I mean, it's been twice before now. Oh, I'm a drug addict. And, and I mean, this time around, it was like I, I, we got home from our holiday. Um, we went straight up to Joburg for further partying for New Year's. And I just tried to ignore the fact that I knew. I knew it. From the moment it happened, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> I kind of just had this feeling. I knew there was problems. <laughs> and... We came home and like the Monday that the school, you know, school started and everything, because, you know, in South Africa, we do it the other way around than you do. (laughs) Like January is kind of the beginning of our our year for school and everything. Yes, because it's the middle of summer. And um, so my nursery school, I got to this building and it was, the, the lawn was overgrown. It looked like a field. And there were so few kids who had come. So I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to even be able to pay the rent in this place. And and there's this other problem at the back of my mind, you know, that I'm going to have to deal with. And I phoned a, a girlfriend of mine and I said, just please come and be with me because I can't deal with this day. And um, and I had also, since going to Cape Town and Joburg, just for these two weeks, had this itch again. I want to leave. I want to leave. I can't stay in this small town. Um, you know, I want to. I want to go to Joburg again. Or I want to go move to Cape Town. You know, I want. I want to get away. But it's that old same monster. You know, that just comes out again, and it's like, Rah, 
you know, feed me. <laughs> and um, so this friend came to my house and we went to the pharmacy and bought a pregnancy test. And she, you know, I, I gave it to her to look at. I'm like, you better look at it because I can't <laughs> deal with this. And she just looked at me and said, my friend, you're going to be a mother. And, um, of course, my world fell apart in that moment. And I immediately we went to my pastor's house because this whole year was, you know, my year of recovery. And they'd been counseling me as well and walking this road with me. And now I've got to go and tell them this. And so um, I went and I spoke to the pastor, to Sean, and we chatted. And then a little, a few minutes later, his wife came out into the lounge and she just smiled and she looked at me and she says, oh, new life. And I looked at her with absolute, like, disbelief. I'm like, are you insane? What do you mean? This is the end of my life. And um, so anyhow, I then I drove back to – because my folks stay on the river. It's like, like I said, kind of a farm. And then about 20 minutes away is like a little – the little town that's where I live now as well actually <laughs> so I drove the little trip down to the river to my folks and on the way there I just I cried and I said Lord please take this away from me I promise I will never be naughty again <laughs> oh, Have you ever, no. but those were honestly those were really really my words I remember it like it was yesterday and I said, I will never be naughty again. I will never take drugs again. I will never, you know, just like sleep randomly with men again. I, I'm so sorry for all my awful, my sinful self, you know. I am now, this is it. This this is my wake up call, you know, just, but please take this away. And it was as if his voice was so loud and clear. And he just said, my girl, I know you mean what you say. I know you want to mean what you say, but you can't. So this is not a curse. This is a blessing. This is my gift to you, a baby, you know. And and I don't believe God makes us pregnant. You know, that was all me. <laughs> but but I definitely saw the, the scripture about, you know, God turns all things for the good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I felt that he had said to me in that moment, I will turn this for the good. But, you know, but this 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 is your way out you know this is going to give you a reason to you know to live for something other than your selfish self <laughs> and yeah so I went home told my mom and dad they did not take it well um needless to say my dad was you know he took a long time to actually accept the pregnancy um especially because there was no father really around um you know he was some dude sitting in Cape Town and um no one of me, you know, he was just a person. And But my mom, she warmed up quite soon because it was her first grandchild on the way. And I tell you, from the next morning I woke up and I had such peace. And I actually woke up before my alarm clock, which is, it never happens because I, I'm not a morning person. And I just, I just woke up wide awake and I felt like, wow, God actually thinks that I am capable of raising another human being. <laughs> <laughs> you know now now nowadays i have my doubts but no but no i i felt i really felt like that this was something completely beyond anything i could have ever dreamed of and from there i have just experienced so many blessings people blessed me with things for the baby and 
Yeah, I had I had a beautiful pregnancy. I loved being pregnant. I I never had sickness or pain or discomfort, and so yeah, she was just really the best thing that could have happened to me. (laughs) Wow, how old is she now? She's seven now. (laughs) Okay, so this is all. So when we talk about where your journey began and when you completely gave up drugs six years ago, is all around the time when your daughter was about to be born. Yes, yes. Okay. And so when did the book come into play? Well, as soon as I um, came back from London, in fact, when I, and that was like actually the very, the shortest period of my whole period of addiction. Um, I had, I came home and during that short two week recovery with my parents, I was like, wow, I have this journal filled with, you know, stories and and experiences and emotions. And I believe I'm going to use this someday to help others and give hope to others. And I started to copy my journal onto the computer. And it took – I only finished the book while I was in Durban, which I mentioned just now. It was probably during my second year of marriage, yes. It was just before – we divorced I in 2012 I think it was I, I finally finished the book because I'd I'd worked on it on and off I, I copied all my journal entries and then from there I wrote the body of the story to just you know make it more make it you know give it to make sense a timeline and and where I was and where I went to and so on um, but there would be a lot of times where I would sort of lose interest, and what happened often was I would lose my book. It, you know, it was it would be on my computer, and the, I'd work on it for three months, and then suddenly my computer would crash, and all the work I'd done would be lost. And then I'd have to go and start from scratch with, you know, a couple of printed pages that I had. And so it was quite a battle <laughs> to get this book finished at the end of the day. Um, and it was actually a miracle because I had read another um, author's drug experience, also a local South African lady. She's now quite a, an amazing author, published author in our country. And um, I read her book and I thought, what about my own book? Let me let me go and try and find it somewhere on my computer again and work on it. And I can't remember. I think it was like a disc. I had saved the last version that I'd I'd written onto a a disc. And this disc was like either it had broken or it it didn't work anymore. But I just – I put it in my laptop that one night and there it was. It was all there and it worked. And I remember remember very clearly – just giving up on the whole idea entirely uh, uh, about a year, I don't know, maybe six months before that night, thinking this book is not meant to be written because he has the last work I did again and it's gone. It, you know, it, I can't retrieve it. And that night it was all there and I sat through the night for a few days and I just finished it and I uploaded it to Amazon's website. <laughs> wow, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> we all have what I call Hollywood blockbuster stories. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we've yeah. we've been through so much. Um, just listening to you tell your story, uh, I know there's so much more. And yeah. just in the hour that you tell your story, there's so much in there that that we can all relate to. Especially the part for me that I remember more importantly when I was out there using, I knew I was doing something wrong. Yes. I knew that I needed to stop, and I could not. 
you know, I, I, and I, and I remember going through the same things with, with my friends where it's like, okay, I'm not going to say anything. All right. And let's just, maybe they won't say anything and maybe we'll, nobody will say anything and then maybe we won't use. Yes. Uh, but somebody was going to bring it up. And I remember <laughs> when it came to the point where I remember somebody finally didn't bring it up. And so it was, nobody's bringing it up. I guess I'm going to have to bring it up. Yes, and, it was, yes. and that's when I realized this thing is done. I'm over. I can't. It's obvious to me that I cannot stop. Yes, you are not in control anymore. That no. that yeah, that 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 I, I like to call it a demon. That demon inside is just it it's overrules you, you know. It's, yeah, it's oh. so powerful. It takes over and it it's so diabolical. It talks to you in your own voice. And yes. You, there's this whole huge dichotomy between I'm doing something wrong, but I can't stop. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be done tomorrow. And especially the part about when you knew you were going to be, okay, well, in a couple of months, it's going to be all over. And I'm thinking, wow, a couple of months? It's a miracle you're still alive. Because <laughs> you're going to hit it so hard. You're yeah. going to hit it so hard. You know, because it's like, well, this is the last time we're using, so we got to yeah. do it right. And and it's just, yeah, there's so many parallels. I remember those moments. <laughs> I remember the thought process. I remember the deals I made with myself. I made yes. I remember the deals I made with others. I remember the conversations in my head. Oh, oh. yeah. But you see, oh, I know exactly what you mean, and that's why um, I felt I should, I should put my journal into a form of a book because I've read so many books and I've watched so many movies about drug addiction and they're somehow very glamorized. I somehow always think at some point of that movie, wow, that's cool. You know? And, yeah. and I want, I wanted my story to be extremely authentic. I wanted my journal parts have got absolutely no editing. So I've, I've written poems, I've written dialogues, I've written just a bunch of, you know, like where you just vomit, stuff onto the page you know from your brain <laughs> where it's just all chaos and and um and i wanted it to be so that other people can read it and really relate you know i'm not telling you a story i made up because i'm creative i'm telling you uh, i'm sharing my actual emotions and thoughts and feelings with you um and and ultimately obviously the purpose of the book is to give people hope that there is a way out because I I went through many years not thinking there is a way out, you know, and that's I think the most terrifying thing to be in when you're an addict. Absolutely, no question about it. Wow! All right, Michelle, <laughs> amazing, amazing story you have there. We're gonna start. We're gonna start winding down, though. We're gonna start winding okay. down. So what I like to do is I like to close up for the newcomer. So I'm gonna ask you a few questions. Uh, in reference to your early recovery, and I want you to respond with insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Yes. What is the best suggestion you have ever received? Well, it seems it, at the time, I must say, it, it seemed very abstract, but it was actually the best suggestion I ever received, and it was when I was in London, also, you know, feeling like there's just no hope, no no solution, nobody can help me. I went to see a drug worker um, at a, from the Hillsong Church, actually, or a counselor, and she listened to me and we spoke, and, and I was kind of so expectant to have some kind of answer. 
And all she did was say to me, I want you to go home and I want you to, to, to go and sit before God and, and get into his word again and find out who you are in him. And I was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> I thought you were going to help me. <laughs> you know, I, that, that, that's, not a, that's not a solution. Um, but later on, I understood what that meant. And even now in my life, um, I've been through other things. Um, in the last few years, which are totally not drug-related, but also very big battles. And every time I, I realize when I get quiet and I go sit at God's feet again, I realize that I lost that thing of who I am in Him. I'm not seeing myself through His eyes. I am seeing myself through the enemy's eyes. So I am weak. I am pathetic. I am useless. I, you know, and it's those lies that make us unable to fight any battle. And that's where the enemy wants to keep us. So for me, the best advice I ever had was go and find out and go look for it, who you are in God. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Well, tell us about that moment, that aha moment or spiritual awakening that you had when you finally accepted that you were completely powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed a hope that you could recover. I think it was definitely that day when I was in that little bed and breakfast all by myself where I just... I actually forgot to mention earlier that I also had a chat to my dad on the phone that as I arrived and I unpacked, he phoned me always. He always phoned me, you know, out of concern and worry, but we're, we're like friends. So we had a chat and he just, again, and, and I'm only remembering this right now as I speak, he also said to me, you must remember that you are joint heir with Jesus to God. Um, a joint heir of God with Jesus. That's the power you have. That's the level where you are, and you must remember that. And just after that conversation is when I just kind of fell down on the bed and and said, you know, Lord, now it's you. I I am unable. That was the moment I realized that I had to surrender this fight to my God because I couldn't do it on my own. It's so powerful. It's so, and and this is something, I think that's the thing I love the most about your story and what I think many of our listeners will resonate with. And I've had a few interviews where there was such a heavy emphasis on a higher power on God. And it's just that need, that absolute need to completely surrender yourself to a power greater than you are, that absolutely, positively, you cannot, you cannot contribute one moment, one ounce of energy towards your own recovery or your own survival. And, yes. and every decision that you have made or and are and will continue to make is a bad one. And so, mm. at this moment, right yes. here, right now. I'm let I'm turning it I'm turning my life completely over to you. And that is got to be when you can get to that moment the most liberating and um freeing experience of your life. 
Definitely. I went through it again, you know, and, and I think it's a continual thing that one has to do because, because we, yes, we are in our flesh. So we will always try to uh, manage ourselves and our lives and our own ability. And, and, and it's a continual daily thing to say, I submit and surrender my flesh, my soul, my emotions, my thoughts to you. Because you know, that is just the better option. <laughs> it is just the better option because the more and the longer you go down this road of doing things in your own capacity, eventually you hit a, a brick wall and it's disaster. You know, in whatever measure, it could be, you know, your relationships or your work or your kids or whatever it is, I have found that I am now at a point where every day I just say, Father, I submit everything unto you because we are, you know, human beings. <laughs> oh, yeah, not cool, actually. You know, we are evil, evil things. <laughs> the heart well, of I, man is evil. So, yes. you know. <laughs> and that's, the, it, it's absolutely true. And it's, it's that reminder or that uh, awareness that this is something that you do on a daily basis. You, you, you basically get up and you pray, you meditate, you ask God for guidance and to get you through the day and to ask him how you can be of service. Yes. And so when that happens, when you do that, you find that your days seem to flow more effortlessly. Yes. When you're constantly in fear because there is that, that fear. That, and, and again, it's that duality that we live in on a daily basis between good and evil. It does exist. So you align yourself with your higher power. You pray in the morning. You ask for help. And there you go. But remember, it's every 24 hours. You know, it's a daily reprieve, we call it. Yes. Yes, that's so true. It's exactly that. The enemy is out there to kill, steal, and destroy. And, you know, stress, confusion. And um, I find one of the biggest things people are suffering from is... um, a low self-esteem and no self-worth. And um, that is, people are just living life every day in this chaotic, broken, broken state. And whether they become addicts or not, the, the people are broken beyond, you know, understanding. And um, I've really become so kind of focused on that and so aware of that. And my heart is so sore for people because, People are too proud or too, I don't know what they are, but they don't want to do that surrender to God thing or to, to their higher power. You know, people just want to operate in their own capacity. And, and it's just, I find it so sad. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's the ego. You yes. Know, you, it's, the ego disconnects you from your higher power, which is it, what's the intention. The intention is to separate you from God and uh, take you down that wrong path. But we could do this for, yes, you know. Yes, we could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our listeners, including your own, of course? <laughs> I was actually thinking about that question before, and I thought, and I actually didn't even think about my own book. I just thought, now, hey, my own book, that is my favorite. No, I'm joking. Um, I do think my own book is very inspiring, but... I've read, uh, I spoke about her earlier. The author's name is Melinda Ferguson, and she's a South African woman, and she has got one heck of a story. Um, And she is also 
an excellent writer. So her book is called Smack, uh, Smacked. And um, it's the horrific tale of her in Hillbrow on heroin, Nigerians, and it was really, really rough times for her and her recovery. And it's very, very beautifully written. And, yeah, that's probably the best book on, on addiction and recovery that I've ever read. And, of course, another good book would be Michelle Tourlet and uh, My Journey Through Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> So that will be listed on the show notes, folks, to make sure you check out both of those books. Cool. And what what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you or reach out to you, Michelle? Um, the best way is, I suppose, via email, um, which is Michelle, just M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, at me time, which is my business. It's M-E-T-I-M-E dot C-O dot Z-A. Beautiful, beautiful. And where can they find your book? Okay, my book is available on Amazon's Kindle ebook store. So if you just go into the Kindle store, you type in Michelle and my interesting surname, and there's no other books out there with that name on, you'll find my book immediately. <laughs> Pronounce your last name for us because I'm sure I'm butchering it. <laughs> no, you're doing pretty well. It's Tola. Beautiful. So... If you could give our listeners only one suggestion, what would it be? Sure. One suggestion. Never give up. I guess um, having a fighting spirit is, is extremely important. And I know I have to give one suggestion, but it goes hand in hand. What we've been saying all along is um, surrendering. Surrendering is, is key. Um, for me, and I, and I really say that um, with regards to not only my recovery from addiction, but in terms of coping with everyday life, <laughs> you know, surrender, surrender to God. Absolutely beautiful. What a wonderful way to close here. Fabulous suggestions, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a privilege. Thank you, O. Absolutely. All right, folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.